Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the class. We are still dealing with Romans chapter 8. And we are in the latter parts, or at least the mid to latter parts of Romans 8. And what I want to do today, and I'm going to ask you, if you did not listen to the previous um, lesson or previous upload, previous video, that you would, um, because this is definitely one that uh, is going to um, it's going to be necessary for you to understand what we said previous. Uh, to be able to follow what I'm going to say today, because uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time rehashing what I said in the previous lesson. In fact, I'm not going to spend any time at all rehashing it, except maybe read a couple of things, and that's it, because there's a lot of information here. The part of Romans 8 that we're looking at is a very mis mistaught, mis understood segment of, of this letter, unfortunately, because of everything that has been said up to this up to this point, and you know, we've said that basically starting in um, you know verse 18 of Romans 8, that when you start there, it seems like things kind of take a turn because people have read these words with a with a preconception with a supposition that it is um speaking now beyond the time in which paul is speaking in the earlier part of romans 8 or uh giving his testimony in romans 7 or any of the things that he said previous to this unfortunately they divorce it in fact as I've said before, the, the heading of this part of chapter 8, starting in verse 18, in my Bible, is the future glory. Well, Paul's not talking about a future glory. Paul's talking about a glory that he is now presently experiencing and glory, which he has been speaking about as his enjoyment right now, by faith, through grace as one who has been brought under from by the work of the cross of Romans 6, brought from the headship of Adam, where death and sin and corruption rule and govern, to now being under the headship of Christ, where the law of that life, the very indwelling law of that life, has brought a liberty and a freedom to the soul from the previous state of sin and death. And therein, what does that mean? Well, he has come into my soul, separated that soul forever from sin and death, and brought in with his presence in himself, brought into the soul, the righteousness, the fulfilled righteousness, the, co the complete righteousness that the law kept us from, never allowed to come about. 
And this is exactly what Paul is addressing here at the, in these letters, in these verses of, of Romans 8. It's not a future glory. It's not something far removed and distant from his present testimony as a man in whom God has fulfilled the righteousness of the law, who is not in the flesh, but now in the spirit, all the things to be said, who is a son of God, who has been led by the spirit to the goal of God, which corresponds directly to this thing that is hoped for, uh, that in, in view of which and in, in the light of which God subjected an entire creation to its own vanity, that is, again, Romans 7 the vanity in which Paul uh, lived under the law, yet desiring to be good, desiring to be holy and righteous. And when he says good, he's not just talking about the flippant way we say, I want to be good. It's He's talking about the, the good of the law, the good of which the law actually speaks, the, the, the perfection of good, which is Christ himself. That's what he's, that's what he's talking about. Not, not, not how we talk about good. So when he says, every time I do good, evil is present, he's speaking of the contrasting of the perfection of which the law testified and which it demanded, uh, ultimately, and the imperfection, the corruptibility that he was always faced with as the internal uh, condition and judgment or condition and government that ruled him from within. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where we are and, and we're still here. And now in these verses, in this latter part of, of Romans eight, he's not deviating from that thought. He is now broadening it out and giving what he is now experiencing as an individual believer. He is now broadening it and saying, this is the messianic promise. This is the divine intention in, of God realized. And it's not just for me. It is the, it is the possession of all who believe. And, and this thing that we're possessing now, this righteousness fulfilled within us, is the thing that God subjected a creation in hope. It is that very thing. It is the hope that he had in view, the substance that he had in mind when he when he brought a creation under subjection to the law and subjected it to its emptiness, to its vanity, to its corruptibility, in hope that one day the Messiah, in whom all the blessings, all the real realities promised, all the things that he had uh, uh promised and prophesied in, in, in whom all those things will be realized. He's telling them that's the reality that he now has in the spirit. That is the truth of our salvation. It's not, you know, we're having issues right now or up and down because we, we, that's how we teach this. We keep Romans seven as a, as a Christian struggle. Again, the heading of my Bible, the Christian struggle, instead of the, the struggle of a man who desired to be holy while still under the law of Moses and compounded upon that, 
still governed internally by the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is not the law of Moses. The law of sin and death is the Adamic reign of that government, the Adamic government, the government of corruptibility that was internal. That's another law that's within us that could not agree to the perfect or could not correspond to or bring about the intention of the law of Moses, which testified of perfection that Christ himself alone is. So the salvation that Paul is now enjoying that has freed him from this struggle and the freedom from this struggle, dear believer, is salvation, not not something yet to be in the future, not something one day will happen. Thank God. Hopefully it will. Hopefully it will. No, that's our salvation right now. That's what Paul is saying. And in this latter part of, of Romans 8, he is giving it a more broader messianic view to show them that this is God's intention from the start. That the law has no more bearing upon producing righteousness because it never was intended, nor could it ever do that. The law was a testimony of this perfection that we have now received through his presence by faith, by the grace of God, it is so. And uh, we, we were talking about that in the previous class. Went into a lot of places to, to show parallels in... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about the house from heaven. Then we went into 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to show that more exceeding, that glory that excelleth, where the first may have had a glory, but the second is more glorious. Um, that's, that's what he's making here. That's the contrast he's making. He's just lamenting over the fact that his brethren, those to whom God had promised these realities first, to whom he came first. Remember, Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews, because it was to them first that these things were made. Paul is lamenting that his brethren, the Jew, the natural Jew, after the flesh, those he calls his brethren, he is lamenting that they, We're not enjoying this reality, and we're actively working against it. He had a deep compassion that was overtaking him for those who were so privileged and so advantaged to be the ones first given God's promise, first given the covenant, first given this hope, and knowing that he and all who were believing, were partaking of this hope for which these Jews still long for, for yet they still yet long for it and were yet laboring unto it or laboring for it to be a realized reality. That's what he tells King Agrippa. For the hope of Israel, I am put brought before you in judgment. They are accusing me for declaring to them that the hope for which they are working day and night in the temple has now come. That's exactly what he's lamenting here in Romans 8, that they are yet 
they are yet forfeiting the privileges that they have, not because they didn't have them as promises, but they're forfeiting the substance of those promises so that they could hold on to just the empty shells, just the shadows, and never lay hold of the actual person in whom those realities, their Messiah, in whom those realities are made perfect and true. And, and, and that is his, that is his groaning. That is the internal groaning of Paul right now in Romans 8. A privileged people forfeiting their rightful position because they will not seek it by faith. And that's why he's going to go on in Romans 9 and says, you know, those who did not have the law have obtained unto the righteousness of the law because they sought it by faith. Those who had the law will not because they will not seek it by faith. That's his lament. That is his death. That's the thing that is overtaking him here. That's the groaning within him so that his people, those natural, the people of a natural lineage would actually begin to enjoy the thing that God intended for them to enjoy. Not only the, not only for the Christian, but for those that he loves. And we're going to get into it that Paul understood that their salvation, that the salvation of all mankind, that the salvation he was now presently enjoying, the salvation that every believer was now enjoying, was their hope, was the Jewish hope, the hope in which God subjected the creation, that hope fulfilled. That's our salvation. We're going to get into that. Because he will say, we are saved in hope. Many people have taken that and and said, yes, we are saved with a hope for future glory. No, our salvation, the fact that we are saved, is that hope realized, is the hope fulfilled. Do you understand that? We are saved in hope doesn't mean we're saved and given a hope for some future thing. It is that our salvation is the culmination of that hope, that expectation realized. It is Christ in you, the glory that was hoped for. That's your salvation. That's your salvation. We are saved. That hope. That hope fulfilled. Um, so, we're going to talk about that as we go, but let's let's go back just for a second, because again, he's talking here about that they are Israelites, and that's one of the beautiful things that Paul says here, that has such a a huge implication. And I want to read a couple of commentaries that'll say this because this will bring us to what we're what we're talking about now and the significance of him saying that we are saved in hope. Um, maybe I should just read those verses. Um, yeah, not only they, but we ourselves grown have the or who have the first fruits of the spirit. That's uh, us. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body again. That's in the previous class. I'm not going back to that. Uh, you can go to that. The previous Romans class that is. For we are saved by hope. The actual word there is we are saved in hope. In the sphere of hope, we have been saved. 
By, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? For if we hope for what we see not, then, I'm sorry, for if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, we're going to talk about that as we go. But we're talking about now a salvation. That is hopeful. That was hoped for, but is now hope realized. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because again, we teach Christ in you, the hope of glory, in Colossians chapter one, and we preach it as if it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, one day. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the thing that was hidden under the first covenant, under that age of testimony, the thing that was hidden, kept hidden through those ages, through that momentary time in which God was testifying of reality, that thing that was hoped for and hidden under that age is now Christ in you. That's the realization of the hope because, and we'll get into it in this chapter as well, same thing is true there of Colossians 1. And I'm speaking to you because I know you know the scripture. If you're listening to this podcast, you know these things. Uh, and if you don't, go back to these references. I'm, I'm throwing the references out there. You can go back to previous classes we talked about. But in Colossians 1, it Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the thing that was hidden throughout the whole of the ages, was the indwelling of Christ, being in us the salvation of the Lord realized. That uh, is not a futuristic thing, that one day we will have the glory because now we have Christ in us as kind of a promise of it. It's a hope that one day we'll be in glory. No, Christ in you is the object. That's what the word means. The object of hope, the thing hoped for, not a means to have hope for something to come the Greek word is, it means, it has the implication not of a hope for something to be, but the very object that was hoped for previously, now present. That's who Christ is in us. And this is what Paul is declaring to the believers who are reading these letters and lamenting that those Jews who are still fighting against the substance, they are missing it. Because the thing that we have as our salvation is the very, the, the very messianic promises that were made to them as a people. And they are missing it, for forfeiting their participation in it. Because they will not just receive it by faith, which is the only way in which, or only way it can be received. Um, so let's talk about just a second. He uses the title Israelites, and in using this word, now this is, uh, I, I think we already covered this, but I'm going to, this is going to be kind of a launching point here. He said, with, I, I wrote, with the use of the title Israelites, Paul elicits all of the privileges that such a designation can warrant, the noble case of their history and moreover, the divine abundance to which they were intended. 
He wants to convey the absolute right they have as God's people, while also presenting the horrible folly of their rejection of Christ in whom these rights are exclusively claimed or partaken. As we will cover in a, in a few moments, how Paul asks, what advantage has the Jew? Right now, he's showing them the advantage they had. And, and the folly in their missing out on the advantages and the privileges in their spiritual fulfillment because they want the law. They want to have a natural fulfillment. They want to be the fulfillment. They want a natural kingdom. That's one thing they wanted. But they want a righteousness of their own, Paul said. What does that mean? A righteousness that looks like them. It pertains to themselves. Their own means it pertains to themselves. It looks just like them. The, this is from, uh, I think, the Weisword study. It says, the intensity of Paul's distress and of his longing for his countrymen is partly explained in this verse. It is the greatness of his people, their unique place of privileges in God's providence, the splendor of the inheritance and of their hopes, which they forfeit by unbelief that make their unbelief painful to fall. And he says, who are, who are Israelites speaks as the character and quality of being Israelites. The double relative characterizes the Israelites with their call and privileges as such that for them, he would even wish himself a curse. He calls them Israelites. Now, he's begin, now he goes into some distinctions like terms, and their distinction and, and, and the distinction of using a certain term concerning the Jewish people. Now, you'll say uh, the term Hebrew speaks of a member of a chosen people. Hebrew speaks rather uh, than a Greek-speaking Jew, the latter called a Grecian, uh, or one could use the designation a Hellenist or a Hellenistic Jew, one who reads his Old Testament in the Septuagint Greek version. The name Jew, however, speaks of him in his national distinction from a Gentile. However, the term used here, Israelite, refers to him, him being the person, the nation, those who he's referring to here, the Israelites, his brethren after the flesh. The term Israelite, however, refers to him as a member of the theocracy, a partaker of the theocratic privileges, the glorious vocation of a nation called Israel and the as being the heir of the promises of God. That is a beautiful encapsulation of the significance Paul has when he writes to our Israelites, to whom pertains all of these realities, all of the privileges, and to me, it brings us back to the argument of Romans chapter 8, part of the reason for his distress concerning them. Now, let's go back just a second. Let's read a couple of more commentaries concerning this Romans 9, because this is going to be important, and this is important. 
understand what he's who he's groaning, who he's longing for. And this to me, knowing what they're missing out on. And this is the thing, such a contrast should give us a an understanding of the greatness of our salvation, the greatness that Paul is declaring to be of the salvation that is through grace. When he is lamenting the fact that they're missing out on such a wonderful thing with all the privileges, with all of the substance, with all of the glory of it, and he's lamenting that they are uh, missing it and forfeiting their participation in it, it should cause us to understand and glory in the fact that he is conversely glorying in the fact that he and all who are believing, all who are receiving Christ by faith, are not forfeiting it, and therefore possess the great and significant thing that they were intended for that they had as their hope, that they had as their messianic expectation. He's saying, we have that reality right now. In fact, his lamenting, if you go into uh, Romans chapter 10, at the end of this lamenting and all that he goes into, Concerning that and the, and the way that they've missed everything and that, the, you know, the significance of the inheritance is not abrogated by their failure to receive it. But, hey, it's been realized in the in the seed, those who are Jews in the heart. He says in, in Romans 10, in the very first verses, he gives what would be the, what would be his desire for them. And in that, he is not just talking about a desire divorced from this. He's saying, here's the thing that would stop my distress. Here's the thing that would cure my lamentations concerning my people. Here's the thing that would cause me to rejoice in there for them, because in this, with this thing, I will know that they are no longer in forfeiture of their uh, redemption or, or their uh, profession promises or their messianic promises or their divine expectations, but they are in the possession of it. And what is that? <clears throat> Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Salvation. This is how he would know this would cause him to rejoice and no longer lament. This would cause him to rejoice because he had know if they are saved, if they're born again, if they have Christ dwelling in them by faith, then I realize that all of the things that they are presently forfeiting, they would now have as their possession by faith and by the presence of Christ within, they would have received, would be in, in the possession of and partaking of all of these rights and privileges in their spiritual completion. Through what? Salvation. That they may be saved. Again, that's what we just read, right? He's saying that about a believer, we are saved in hope. Our salvation is their hope fulfilled. Everything they hope for under the age of testimony, we now have as our salvation every bit of it. 
So for those of us who are still Christians and saying, the big thing's going to happen one day, what's new, what's next, what's going to happen down the road, are truly ignorant of the significance of salvation itself, being born again, being found in him, being being born of the spirit of God, having Christ living in us is their hope, is every prophecy and promise realized internally. It is every intention that God had toward his people in its fulfillment. That's your salvation. That's my salvation. That's Christ within the hope of glory. Now, uh, yeah, because he'll go on here in, in Romans 9, 6 and says that it is not as though the word of God has come to naught, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel, meaning that are born naturally of Israel. It is not as though the thing has gone without fulfillment. Now, let me read this. It is not of such that, and he said, here alone in the New Testament, have come to naught, perfect, active, indicative, is an old verb to fall out, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, for not all those out of Israel, the literal Jewish nation, these are Israel, the spiritual Israel. Um this startling paradox is not a new idea with Paul. He had already shown in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, that those of faith are the true sons of Abraham. He has amplified that idea also in Romans 4, so he is not making a clever dodge here to escape the difficulty. He shows how this was the original purpose of God to include those who believe, who have realized this hope in Christ Jesus. Um, now, let's, let's look here for a second, because I want to read what John Gill said, because this will, I'm going to sum this up as far as, uh, Paul speaking of the, basically the apostasy of the Jews and their refusal to receive that which God had set as their expectation. These two words, heaviness and sorrow, what Paul says, he has great heaviness and sorrow for them. The one signifies grief, which had brought on heaviness on his spirit. The other such a pain as a woman in travail feels. And the trouble of his mind expressed by both is described by its quantity, great heaviness. It wasn't a little, it was very much. And by its quality, it was internal. It was of the heart. It did not lie merely in an outward show with a few words or tears. It was in his heart. It was a heart sorrow. And its duration was continual, not a sudden emotion or a passion for what had been in him for a long time and had deeply affected and greatly depressed him. And what was the reason for all of this? Well, it may be pretty easily understood. It was because of the obstinacy of his countrymen, the Jews, the hardness of their hearts, their willful rejection of the Messiah, their trusting to their own righteousness, to the neglect and the contempt of the righteousness of Christ, 
which he knew must unavoidably issue in their destruction. And what God greatly affected his mind, what greatly affected his mind was the utter rejection of them as the people of God and the judicial blindness and hardness of their heart. And I think we would see the significance of these things what they were missing, what they were longing for yet missing. Because the means by which these things are received was by faith. The substance for which they were longing was spiritual and not natural. It's what Paul will say, Romans 7, the law is spiritual, meaning the law's conclusion is a spiritual conclusion. It is not a conclusion that can be rendered by fleshly effort it is a spiritual conclusion that can only be rendered by a spiritual end, and that is Christ himself, by a spiritual substance, that is Christ himself, Christ in you. I think it's rather apparent to those who haven't been blinded by a particular eschatological bent that this is the continuation of what Paul is describing in Romans 8. It is as well as a continuation of the argument he's been making earlier in this letter an argument that we are found, we found in places like Romans 2 and 3. And we dealt a long time in this Romans, Romans uh, lesson in Romans 2 and 3. Let's read that for a moment, okay? Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and we're going to read a lot of this. Romans 2, verse 1 through 13. Therefore, Thou art inexcusable, old man. Now, he's talking to the Jew now. He's previously been talking about the Gentiles. And he's set up an ugly picture. But now he's talking to the Jew who is looking at the Gentile, pointing fingers and talking about how awful the Gentile is. So now he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, old man, whoever thou art. For wherein thou judgest another, you condemn yourself. For thou that judges does the same things. Again, Paul doesn't have Facebook. Paul doesn't have surveillance cameras. He doesn't have the ring on his front door where he can see things that people don't know he's seeing and really understand. Boy, these people are just putting on airs. They, they, they're, they're bad. They, they make you think they're good, but they're doing all these pretty bad things. No, that's what he's talking about. Because Paul understood, as we'll see in Romans 7, he understood the internal nature of all men, whether Jew or Gentile. He understood that all men were on the same level. There's the equality of man. You want equality? There's the equality of man, dead in sin and trespasses, corrupt from the bone, okay? Corrupt from the root. That is, that is the true equality of man. And Paul's pointing this out to those self-righteous Jews who are pointing at Gentiles and saying, see, told you, they're worthless. They're dogs. They're sinners. He's saying, you judge them, but you do the same thing. And basically he's saying, you judge their character, but you are of the same nature internally. You are still of the flesh. You're still under, as he will go on in Romans 5, you're still under the same headship of Adam. Until you're born again, that headship doesn't change. No matter how perfectly you adhere to the law of Moses, you are still chained to a dead body that 
<coughs> corrupts you. Uh, a government is still governing you from within, no matter what you do without. <coughs> you condemn yourself or you judge, you that judge do the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. Thinkest thou this, old man, that judgest them which do such things and do the same? Do you think you shall escape the judgment of God, or despise thou the riches of the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, or God is so good and his kindness so real that he is calling you to repent, even when you don't think you need to? But after thy hardness and impotent heart, impenitent heart, treasurest up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient endurance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious. And I believe this who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's those who are wait, who waited for the righteousness of God, who have waited for the substance of which the law testified, but unto which it could not bring us, but they waited for him to come. And by faith they received. <laughs> because the contrast here is in verse 8. But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. The glory, honor, peace to every man that worketh good. <coughs> Excuse me, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearer of the law are just before God, but the doer of the law shall be justified. Now, this is an exposure of the self-adulation of the Jews and their perceived righteousness by law. Paul expertly demonstrates that in the midst of their assumptions of being above the Gentiles, they are assuredly equal to them as to their internal nature and makeup before God. The true thought is captured in the phrase, there's no respect to persons with God. God sees all mankind either under the headship of Adam or under the headship of Christ. They are dead in sin or they are alive in Christ, and that is it. That is all. He doesn't respect people, <clears throat> meaning he doesn't have favorites. He has his son, his eye, his favor, and his love is set upon one. And God's relationship to us, whether Jew or Gentile, has to do with whether we are found in that son or not. And then he goes on here and he begins to speak, just like he does here in Romans 9 that we covered. 
of the advantage that a Jew has. Because that's who he's addressing here, the judges, those who think they are holy by the law. He says, what advantage does the Jew have? What profit is there of circumcision? Much. Every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. You see that? He's, again, showing them their privilege. But he's showing them that that privilege was unto something. It was not the thing to be held to because it changed nothing as to their internal state. And we're going to get to the significance of all of this in a moment because we're still, we're still talking about the thing hoped for because that's the thing that makes the change that the law could not make. That's the thing that brings the privileges to, to their eternal and divine completion and not just a promised privilege, hoped for inheritance. There has to be a change, and there's only one who can bring about that change. There's only one work that can bring about that change, and that's the missing thing. The, the, the advantage is true concerning the Israelite or the Jew. Because unto them that was, was committed the oracles of God, they had the law. They had the righteousness of the law. They had all of that. That was a great advantage, a great privilege, all the promises. But until there was an internal change that brought about those, brought those things to their complete and utter fulfillment, so that man as an in, internally could partake, partake of them, there was no difference. So he says here, there is a great advantage to circumcision. There's a great advantage that they were committed to the oracles of God. Then he goes on in verse three, but what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make God's faith without effect or his faithfulness without effect? God forbid, let, every, let God be true and every man a liar. That, as it is written that, that that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when you are judged. Why? Because God is sovereign and he will do right according to his purpose. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteousness who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Whose damnation is just? What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. We have before proved before, or both Jew and Gentile, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we'll keep that in mind, too, because this is the hope for thing. This is the reality. It is to bring a soul from no, not one to the one who is. Because no promise of privilege, no natural lineage can bring that about. It, it, it gives you an advantage, but that advantage falls short if you refuse the means 
of its realization. That is faith to lay hold of that inheritance, of that promise in its entirety, in its eternal and divine fulfillment in Christ himself. Barnes says they contain, he's talking about the scriptures as to the oracles of God, the scriptures contain beside many precious promises respecting the dignity of the nation in reference to their Messiah, meaning all of the messianic privileges and promises that came to them. But no higher privilege or no higher favor can be conferred on a people than to be in possession of the sacred scriptures. Why? Because they were those first intended to be the recipients of that which the scriptures testified, Christ himself. That's why he came to them and said, you search the scripture and you believe that in them you have life. They are they that testify of me. You will not come to me that you may have life. Why? Because the privileges, the advantages that the Jew had in promise could only be received by receiving him as the life of which those testimonies spoke. And therein, the internal change could take place. Romans chapter 3 goes on and says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh <clears throat> be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now is the righteousness of God without the law manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus, unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a uh, propitiatory satisfaction. It has to do with Christ being the satisfaction before God through faith in his blood to declare him righteous, his righteousness, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That's all the sins previous in the age previous to his coming, the old covenant. All of those sins, gone. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justification or justifier of him that believes in Jesus. So where's your boasting? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentile? Yes, of the Gentile also. Seeing it is one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. So do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. We establish the law. Now, I want you to understand, Paul is undoubtedly here presenting his heart toward his people, that they would actually partake of the spiritual embodiment of their testimonial advantage. His lament is due to the fact that he understood that this was not a given, that it was not a given that they would be at some point fully assimilated into the kingdom. 
he understood that for that to take place at all, they'd have to receive the one promised Messiah. For while advantage through the possession of the oracles, the covenantal promises, the scripture, the inheritances, that advantage could only be realized in the expectation of which they their law testified could only be possessed through the work of grace, through faith, by which the soul is translated from the body of death to the body of life himself. That's new birth. The work in which, the work that brought translation, listen to this, brought you from death unto life, brought you from the body of death to the body of life. And in that body, in that man, in that work, their salvation and their hope is received and realized, and their promised adoption is received. And I believe this is directly connected to the rest that you read of, that those by unbelief forfeited, the that Paul desired with all his heart that his own people would come to know by faith. Now, let's go further in this. We are saved in hope. Let's look at this for a moment. He says, for we are saved in hope. issue before us in this phrase, we are saved in hope, or as Brother Kenneth Weist always says, in the sphere of hope. It does not express, as many have imagined, um, what the thrust of our salvation is utterly related to the future, meaning we are saved with a future hope. Salvation is the fact that what God has set in an age, in a creation, who are under the law as a hope and an expectation, as promises and prophecies, we now have received in Christ, which is called salvation, being born again. I don't believe it relates to anything being related to the future. I think it directly relates to the hope in which God subjected that in creation, that creation, who I believe is the Jew, if we read uh, before in Romans 8. Meaning our salvation does not relate to an unsettled and indefinite happening, which will eventually secure the state of a believer, the state of man. But that the believer is in fact the partaker of the hope for reality for which that subject to creation is yet longing. Now, <clears throat> they are, there are some commentaries and word studies here that I want to share with you because they say it plainly that this word, not only in is the proper way to say it, not, not by or through, but in hope. But he also says here, this is from Vincent's word studies, he said in this verse, the word is used of the object of hope, not just hope as a thing, but the thing that was hoped for, the object of hope. 
So let us consider the absurdity of believing that as long as Paul has been presenting the certainty of a condition here in Romans 8, Romans 6, and uh, a condition of being in the spirit and not the flesh, that he would now place all expectation for the, for the reader presently at that time or us 2,000 or more years later, that he would change from presenting such a strong present reality of being in the spirit and being made free from the law of sin and death and enjoying a righteousness fulfilled in him. Now he would take all of that, rip it apart by placing all the good expectations upon a future resurrection of a body or a future certification of salvation or to place the certainty of our hope into the far distant future. That makes no sense. And that's not what he's doing at all. There was a hope <clears throat> that this Romans letters, uh, the Romans chapter speaks of, but the, but the old covenant speaks of it too. There was a hope in the midst of a creation, and you read it throughout the Old Testament, a hope that they had for something that was coming. And I'm just going to read a couple of things to you. Psalms 119, which we've been in the study of Psalms 119, but here, consume for, thou sal for thy salvation hath been my soul, for thy word I have hoped. Thou art my, this is uh, Psalms 119, verses 114 through 116. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Depart from me, evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according, according unto thy word that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. There was a hope. There was a hope in the midst. And you can read it. That's just a couple of, in, in the midst of a multitude of them. There's so many that are there, but hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. That hope came. And he is the tree of life in the midst of his city. That hope has come. Now, Hebrews Six talks about because there is that hope again. I'm not going to get into the uh, all the verses. Go look at it. Just concordance, man. Just look at hope and go through the Old Testament, and you'll see there's a hope that they were they were something in their midst, a longing, a hope for thing that they knew was coming. And they were longing for it. And this is what Paul is talking about. Not as still our hope, but as our salvation. He is saying our salvation is that hope realized. And you can see hope realized internally uh, in Hebrews 6, too. He says, by two, uh, by uh, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold. Listen to this. Speaking of those who have come out of the Jewish system, he's, he's writing to the Hebrews, those who have come out of that Jewish system and believed in Christ, but who are now in many ways being swayed to go back and to look back at those things with some kind of an honor, some kind of a uh, desire. 
when those things never gave them the substance that faith has. And he says, we who have laid hold upon, we have fled from that to lay hold of the hope set before us. Which hope we have now, have, as an anchor of the soul. As an anchor of the soul. See, that's, that's our hope. It's a salvation that anchors our soul in the holiest of all. It is Christ in you. That's the anchor. That's him in the holiest of all. Sure, steadfast, who enters into that within the veil. The forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ in you. That is the anchor. That is the hope for reality. And that is salvation presently those who have and are believing. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, <clears throat> the we have here the introduction of the better hope. Verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. That's the first commandment. That's the law. That's the first order. For the law made nothing perfect, brought nothing to completion, and, and made those who came, according to Hebrews 10, made, could not make the comers thereunto with their sacrifices and their offering and, and all of their religious obligations could not make them perfect as well because it never brought anybody to the hoped-for reality. It was just basically external exercises, yet in hope for something. It wasn't that we now possess the thing hoped for. But what made it perfect? The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. By which, we draw nigh unto God. I want you to be very careful. Pay close attention to the context of these words. It's easy to see the exact parallel of what Paul is saying in Romans 8. He addresses the unprofitableness, the weakness of the law, the commandments. That's the uh, left them subject to their own corruption. That's Romans 7, talking about the unprofitableness of that whole system. Not because of it but because of the weakness of flesh being the government of sin and death that it was working with. So in Romans 8 and here in Hebrews 7 and others, it says it speaks of the unprofitableness and the weakness of the commandments, the law, and its necessary disannulment. How does this happen? How does that disannulment take place? And how is the perfection the law could not bring about actually accomplished? by the bringing in of a better hope. What's the word better mean? The word better is actually a word that it, it, it comes from other words. Kratos is one of the words it comes from, meaning strong, active, and effective or effectual. It goes on to mean something very far, exceedingly better, not just better, far exceedingly better. Why? Because it, the substance of it, actually fulfills the intention the previous thing pointed to 
but could not fulfill. It is better because it is the thing that was intended. It was the realization of the desire of God. That's your salvation. The better hope has done in you because you've received the better hope. Christ is the better hope, is the hope for reality. In receiving the better hope, that better hope has fulfilled in you what that, what the law, which had just that hope in testimony, could never fulfill. It gave us a hope for something. But the new covenant, the spirit of life living in us, doesn't give us something to hope for. That one, that work, new birth, God, by his grace, granting the soul to be the habitation of his son, brings into the soul that very hoped for substance. <laughs> That's what being saved in hope is all about. In fact, in Hebrews 7, when he uses the unprofitableness of the law, it is the same, it has the same meaning as the word vanity. As we subjected the creation to its own vanity. The whole thing. Empty vanity. So what did, what what did God do? He brought in the better hope. It's not a different hope. It's just that hope made, or just that hope in the form of fulfillment, in a spiritual form, in the form that God intended, Christ in you. He introduced the divine reality, the good thing that preexisted the law itself. He brought in the more excellent, the perfect, the new, the everlasting, the true. These are all words that are used to declare this thing in the New Testament, in the New Testament. He brought in the better hope. This is according, this is from uh, Adams Clark. He said he brought in the better hope, which refers not to earthly, but to spiritual good not to temporal, but to eternal felicity found in the high priest and atonement of Christ. The better hope means Jesus Christ himself, who is the author and the object of the hope of eternal life, which all of his believers and followers presently possess. He is called our hope. That's beautiful. Guys, that's much more beautiful than saying, just keep on hoping. Keep on hoping. He's he's a coming one day. And with all the stuff going on in the government and the world, he's coming sooner than ever. No, he has come. Your hope is fulfilled because your salvation is hope realized, is the better hope himself present and abiding in you.
Now, let's go on in this, but it's because he says we are saved in hope. But then he says, <clears throat> and I know I'm going probably a little, yeah, not probably, I'm going over my time, but bear with me, okay? Hope that is seen is not hope. Since hope signifies something that is to come. Now, again, as we said, here in this part, you are saved in hope. That is the object of hope. But in these other places, it speaks of something yet to be. A hope for, a hope for something. Not the thing hoped for, but a hope for something. <clears throat> so he says, if the thing is seen, why do you yet expect it or wait for it or long for it or hope for it to come? As if it is not present. That's that's his implication here. Which many were doing. That's why many were being swayed to go to the law or go to the external, because actually having a salvation they they possessed, but they had not understood or seen or enjoyed what they had. Now he's turning his attention back to his reader. And speaking of them whose salvation is their hope realized, but a hope that is seen is not hope. <coughs> it is not something yet to be, if you are laying your eyes on it or possessing it or enjoying it as something present. Now, according to Barnes, he says, when the object is seen, the hope for object is seen, what he just said is our salvation and is in our possession, it can't be said to be an object of hope because the word here means the object of hope, the thing hoped for. The word seeth here is used here in the sense of possessing or enjoying. What a man already possesses, he cannot be said to hope for as if it's not yet present. Now, I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 5, and it's going to take us in a few places because as I was studying it out, I got on a rabbit trail, and I want you to hop along it with me, okay? Because to me, it's significant and important and shows us uh, a lot of what is being said here, I think, it may get us into a little detour, but we'll come right back. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Now, I'm hurrying as much as I possibly can. Again, Paul is speaking to these believers, Gentile believers, who are now being Judaized or being convinced by proponents of the Jewish religion that circumcision was the way to go. Circumcision was a means to righteousness. Circumcision was the means by which they could achieve righteousness and holiness. And Paul is writing to them and says here, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. Meaning, you are outside of the context of grace when you are reaching to the law for your righteousness. Because the whole reality of grace is it is not I but Christ who lives in me. When you are, it's just the same thing he said in Galatians 2. If I seek it, 
by the law, then I have received this reality in vain. And he died in vain. He's saying the same thing here. But in verse 5, he gives, an, he gives a picture of those of us. And I think this is what Paul is implying here in Romans 8. What, he's, what he is declaring to these believers who have received the very thing in them that Paul is rejoicing in in the first part of Romans 8. That they are not in the flesh. They are in the spirit. They have a righteousness of the law fulfilled in them, not just a requirement to fulfill the law. They have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled because he's in them. Christ is in them. And he's calling them to understand that any desire to go back to an external means of achieving what God has already brought into their soul through Christ, is a rejection of the grace of God. Doesn't mean you're not born again. It is a it is a refusal. It is it is a contradiction to what God has wrought in Christ. And he is saying to them now, turning to them and saying, but we speaking of we who are believing, we who are not trying to be justified by the law. We, through the Spirit, wait, wait, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, I love this part, for in Christ Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith, which works by love. Another place he speaks that circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation in Christ. And in verse 7, he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So again, he's turning his attention to the believers and shows that our patience as believers, our waiting, is not waiting for reality to come one day, but waiting in reality, within it, in the sphere of that hope realized, we wait so that we can have an inward realization, an inward beholding, a seeing by the work of God, an understanding wrought of God, that what was expected under one age, has actually been realized by the presence of Christ within in this eternal age, that what was expected under the first has now come in the possession of my soul through the presence of the second. And my soul becomes aware of that in the knowing of Christ, in the seeing of him, in the eyes of my heart being opened and unveiled to behold the reality that has come. And in so doing, I will not be swayed to look to the externalities to try to prove or to produce what the internal realities have wrought. The only reason you're still hoping for something to come, whether it is an eschatological thing or just a matter of spirituality such as righteousness and holiness, not to mention kingdom and glory. 
We separate those things like they're dispensationalized. They're not. Any of that that you're still thinking is one day is a hope for the future. Your only issue is not that that reality, no matter kingdom, glory, uh, inheritance, perfection, holiness, righteousness, no matter what it is. Those realities are present because Christ is present. The issue is not the possession of them. The issue is the seeing of them. Because if you've seen them, you can't yet hope for them as if there's something yet to happen. You can't still be waiting for them when you understand or enjoy the presence of them in him, in Christ within you. Paul sets the context of this waiting. And I love the connections of the phrase. And in this righteousness that we wait for, it's the hope of righteousness. We just wait to see that hope for righteousness as our internal possession because the other option is to try to produce that righteousness by works. What he's saying is, listen, we stand in a reality, we stand in a place, we stand in a sphere of living in which circumcision, Jewish religion, uncircumcision, Gentile, none of it matters. And we put such great emphasis on either one we have to choose a side, circumcision, uncircumcision. We choose sides. We have to choose a side, holy by this means or that means. You you either baptize by dunking or dipping or sprinkling or whatever. We got to choose a side. And Paul would say, none of it matters. None of it matters. What matters is faith that works by love. Faith is the matter. Faith is the thing that matters. A new creation is what matters. None of these other things that we hold so strongly to avail anything. They are nothing. Nothing. What we're speaking of is a soul being made cognizant of a salvation without any reference to these fleshly distinctions or practices righteousness that is summarized and substantiated in the presence of Christ, who is all in all. Now, he goes at the end here and he says, you did run well. Who has hindered you that you should not obey the truth? And I'm telling you, this is exactly where he's going here, I think. I think he says the same thing because I believe Paul was the writer of the Hebrew letter. You may may or may not believe that. It doesn't matter. But it says the same thing here. To me, and what we're about to read, he is reminding them of their manner of life when they first embraced the gospel and the liberty that they then enjoy. We're about to read in Hebrews. 
a liberty of an anchored soul, perfect and whole in the sight of God. The same claim is made here in Hebrews 12. The setting is very important, and it mirrors the context in which we find ourselves in Romans 8. People that were given promises in the messianic culmination. But in Hebrews, he's speaking to those very people who had believed in Christ for salvation. They were at one time under the law, but now they had believed in Christ for their salvation, but they would yet look back with some honor to that edifice that was of no continual value, no efficacy whatsoever. And as I thought about that, because we're going to read Hebrews 12 in a moment in, but as I thought about that, my mind went, remember Lot's wife. Notice the words here. And how they will reflect. And I'm going to read this in Galatians, not Galatians, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 18. Because I think we see this in a testimonial way here. And to me, it reflects the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 3, where he says, there is none righteous. No, not one. Because again, in this Hebrew letter, in all of it, many of his letters, but here in Hebrews, what we're going to read in Hebrews 12, he's talking to those who would look back, honor to that thing, would look back to the law and say, maybe we need to add something of that. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's something there. And look at what this testimony actually proves to us. Here in Genesis 18:25, that by that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. <clears throat> that the righteous should also be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will do right, but your assumption is false to think there's any righteous. But then we see this practice we see this back and forth because he's going to prove something to abraham and i think he needs he should prove this to us and paul i think understands it as well in romans 3 when he says what he says because look at what happens and the lord said verse 26 i if i find in sodom 50 righteous within the city i will spare all the for their sake meaning if there is a righteous one then I'll do that. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon thee to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure, there shall lack 50 or, or lack five of the 50 righteous. Will you destroy the city for the lack of five? And he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. So he's going down. And he spake unto him yet again and said, uh, there shall be found 40 there. And he said, I will not do it for 40 He said unto him, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall be 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the 20's sake. And he said, Lord, no, do not be angry. I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure 10 shall be found there 
And he said, I will not destroy it for Pen's sake. You see this? Say there are this many righteous. Okay. Find that many. Fine. Say there's this many. Maybe there's not that many, but they have about this number. Okay. Fine. What is God doing? This is illustrating. This practice is illustrating Paul's point in Romans 3. There is none righteous. Why? Because the city is destroyed. What happens next proves there is none righteous. No, not one. Not worthy to be spared. Not one. The answer is this judgment of the cross. There is not one, meaning the law is weak because it is dealing with that weakness. It is not weak in and itself, but because it has to deal with the weakness of flesh, it is ineffectual. So what the law could not do, God has done in the sending of his son. Now let's return back to this patience. To see it is not a patience that looks for what is not, but unto who he is. Unto the one who is. Not for something that is not but unto the one who is. Not only, and I love this part, because this is what he's going to say here in Hebrews 12. It is looking unto the one who is not merely the originator, of, meaning the originator of types, figures, and shadows, and elements, but it's, all, it's looking to him who is the originator, but has also come in the perfection and as the fulfillment of that original design. He's come as the pattern's fulfillment. He's not another pattern for us to follow as believers. He's not the pattern. He is the fulfillment of the pattern. Moses received the pattern. We in Christ receive the fulfillment. We receive the whole thing. Yes and amen. That's what he's saying here. So what does it mean to see, patience to see the hope that is coming where you still won't be walking around waiting for something that's already present and looking for means and methods problem is seeing the hope that has come. Not that you don't have one, because once you see that you have the thing, you won't wait on it to be like a future hope. You will know he's present, and you will set your heart to know the one who is present. That's the real thing. So Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore also as for us, Having so, this is from the, uh, we expanded translation in the New Testament. Therefore, as for us, having so great a cloud of those who are bearing testimony, that's the Hebrews uh, 11, heroes of faith in chapter 11. We have those bearing testimony surrounding us, having put off and away from ourselves once and for all every encumbrance. Every encumbrance and the sin which so 
deftly and cleverly places itself in an entangling way around us with patience. Let us be running the race that is lying before us. It is, this is Paul in Philippians 3. I may apprehend, attain to that which is set before me. This is not something yet to be. This is the knowing, the growing up in, the reality that is present. It's about the spirit growing us into the head in all things. Let us patient, with patience be running the race lying before us. And here's the way we see the hope. Here's the looking and the seeing of hope. Looking away unto Jesus, the originator and perfecter of this aforementioned faith, the faith that Abraham had, the faith that all of those heroes of faith had, looking for something to come. See, Romans 8 has been taught like that's what this hope's all about. No, he's saying to the believer, let us be looking at Jesus. Because he hasn't just originated something, but hadn't finished it. He himself has come, dwells in you as the originator and the perfecter of that thing in its entirety. <coughs> Set your heart to know him because he's there to know. He's present to enjoy. Because unless you are Knowing him, you can be swayed, my dear friend. You can be swayed to add to your exercise, add, try to look for something more or add something to. And there's none of that. There's none of that. At our hearts to see the hope that is present, the one who is in us, Christ in us, the hoped for glory. <coughs> I hope this has helped. I hope this has been a blessing to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot that you're out there listening. It really does. And I just pray that we would all not only say, oh, I understand that, that's, that's, but that we would, yes, understand it because, hey, I would rather someone tell me these things so that I can bring them before the Lord than never hearing such a present truth. So I appreciate your patience and listening, uh, taking this long time. It's been a, almost an hour and a half. I apologize, but I think it was necessary. I hope that it was a blessing, hope it was encouraging in the truth, edify in the reality of spirit. So till next time, guys, amen.